Chapter Twenty Eight of the Mystery of the Hasty Arrow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romantic, too romantic. Part Two. Both men had started to their feet. How? It was not she. It was not she who was struck, but it was she who was aimed at. The young girl merely got in the way. But before I enlarge upon this point, he continued in lower tones, as the two officials slowly reseated themselves, allow me to admit that any proof of correspondence between these old-time lovers would have added much to my present argument. But while I have no doubt that such an interchange of letters took place, and that in all probability some one or more of them still exist, Mrs. Taylor's illness and Mr. Roberts' high position prevent any substantiation of the same on our part. I must therefore ask you to assume that it was in obedience to some definite agreement between them that she came to the museum on that fatal morning and made her appearance in that especial section of the gallery marked two. If this strikes you as inconceivable and too presumptuous for belief, you must at least concede that we have ample proof of his entire readiness for her coming. The bow brought up so many days before from the cellar was within reach, the arrow under his coat, and his place of concealment so chosen as to make his escape feasible the moment that arrow flew from the bow. Had she entered that section alone, had the arrow found lodgment in her breast, instead of in that of another? Nay, I will go even further and say that had no cry followed his act, in expectation he had every right to count upon, from the lightning-like character of the attack, he would have reached the curator's office and been out of the building before quick discovery of the deed made his completion of this attempt impossible. But the girl did cry out, remarked the assistant district attorney, how do you account for that, since, as you say, it was not natural for one pierced to the heart without warning? Ah, you see, the big mistake we made, Corey and all the rest of us, had Miss Willits, or I should say Mademoiselle Duclos, been the one to let out that dolorous cry, the man just behind the partition would have been there almost in time to see her fall. Corey who started up the stairs at the first sound, would have been at the gallery entrance before the man of the arrow could have dropped the hanging over his retreating figure. But it was not from her lips, poor girl, that this gasping shriek went up, but from those of a woman who saw the deed, knew from whom the arrow came, and for whom it was meant. How do I know this? Because of the time which elapsed, the few precious minutes which allowed Mr. Roberts to get as far away as the court, for she did not voice her agony immediately. Even she, with her own unwounded heart, keeping up its functions, stood benumbed before this horror. Not until the full meaning of it had penetrated her reluctant brain did she move or cry out. How long this interval was, whether three minutes were consumed by it or five, we have no means of telling. She, in her despair, would take no note of time, nor would Mr. Travis, 
reeling in the opposite gallery under the shock of seeing all that he loved taken from him in one awful minute. Here the detective turned with great earnestness toward the two officials. This question of time has been, as I have repeatedly said, the greatest stumbling block we have encountered in our consideration of this crime. How could the assassin, by any means possible, have got so far away from the pedestal in the infinitesimal lapse of time between the cry that was heard and the quick alarm which followed? Now we know. Have you anything to say against this conclusion? Any other explanation to give which will account for every fact as this does? His answer came in a dubious gesture from the district attorney and a half-hearted no from his assistant. They were both either too awed by the circumstance or too fearful of mistake to accept without a struggle an accusation of this grave and momentous character against one of Mr. Roberts' stamp and consequence. This was no more than Mr. Grice had expected, and while he realized that his reputation as a detective of extraordinary insight in cases of an unusually baffling nature trembled in the balance, he experienced a sudden distaste of his work which almost drove him into renouncing the whole affair. But the habits of a lifetime are not parted with so easily, and when the chief inspector observed, evidently, with the idea of goading him on, this seems to be mainly a matter of conjecture, Grice. His old self reasserted itself, and he answered boldly, I acknowledge that, but conjecture is what in nine cases out of ten smooths out many of our difficulties. I have here a short statement, made by myself, after the most careful inquiries, of all that Mrs. Taylor and the untrapped director did and said in the few difficult moments when they met face to face over the body of his unfortunate victim. I ask you to listen to a portion of it. She had not moved. After her one cry of horror, which had brought a rush of witnesses upon the scene, she remained fixed on her knees in the absorbed introspection common to those brought suddenly face to face with a life-and-death crisis. He, finding that his own safety demanded action suitable to his position as a director, had entered with the crowd, and now stood in her presence, in face of his own diabolical work, in an attitude of cold courage, such as certain strong natures are able to assume under the pressure of great emergencies. So long as she was deaf to all appeal, to rouse and explain the situation, he stood back watchful and silent. But when she finally roused and showed a disposition to speak, his desperation drove him into questioning her in order to see how much she understood of the attack which had killed a harmless stranger and let herself go free. He asked her first if she could tell from which direction came the arrow which ended this young girl's life. She made no reply in words, but glanced significantly at the opposite gallery. This called from him the direct inquiry. Did you see anyone over there at the moment this young girl fell? She shook her head. Afterward she explained the denial by saying that she had been looking down into the court. But he did not cease his inquiries. 
Turning to the people crowding about him, he put the like question to them, but receiving no answer, a silence followed, by which a woman suggested in tones loud enough for all to hear that there were no arrows on the other side of the court, but that the gallery where they stood was full of them. This seemed to alarm Mrs. Taylor. Turning to the director, she asked whether he was sure that the opposite gallery held no arrows and no bows, and when he replied that nothing of the kind was to be found along its entire length, she proceeded to inquire whether any such deed could be committed in a place so open to view, without attracting the observation of someone wandering in court or gallery. This undoubtedly to ascertain the full extent of his danger, before bestowing a thought upon herself. But at his answer, given with the cold precision of a thoroughly selfish man, that if anyone in the whole building had seen so much as a movement in a spot so under suspicion, that person would have been heard from by this time, she faltered, and was heard to ask what he had in mind, and why the people about her looked at her so. He did not respond directly, but made some remark about the police, which increased her alarm to the point of an attempted justification. She said that it was true about the arrows, as anyone could see by looking up at the walls. But where was the bow? No one could shoot an arrow without a bow. And when someone shouted that if the arrow was used as a dagger, one wouldn't need a bow, a sort of frenzy seized her and she acted quite insane, falling at the young girl's side and whispering sentence after sentence in her ear. What more was needed to stamp her as a madwoman in the eyes of the ordinary observer? Nothing. But to you and me, with the clue just given, it has another look. She had just seen the man whom she had herself spared from an accusation which would have been his ruin to accept in the coldest fashion an explanation which left her own innocence in doubt. What wonder she succumbed to temporary aberration. As will be remembered, she soon became comparatively calm again, and so remained until in an interview I had with her, a half hour or so later, I urged her, possibly, with too much insistence, for some explanation of the extreme agitation she had shown at the time when she broke forth with a remarkable statement that it was not the child, but her husband, she was mourning, stricken to death, as she would have us believe, simultaneously with the young and innocent victim then lying dead at her feet. Of course, such a coincidence was much too startling not to be regarded by us all as the ravings of delirium nor has anything occurred since in the way of communication from, or in regard to, the absent one, to show that this so-called warning of death has been followed up by fact. But if you test her action by the theory I have just advanced, viz., that the man she called husband at that moment was in the room with us, and that these words were a plea to him, the last appeal of a broken-hearted woman for the support she felt to be her due. How the atmosphere of unreason and mystery clears itself. His suggestion that what was needed there was an alienist 
and the pitiful efforts she made to exonerate herself without implicating him in the murderous event fall naturally into place, as the action of a guilty man and the self-denying conduct of a devoted woman. Romantic, too romantic, objected the district attorney. I should think we are listening to one of Dumas's tales. Dumas got his greatest effect from life, or so I have been told, remarked the chief inspector. Mr. Grice sat silent. Suddenly, the district attorney observed with the slightest tinge of irony, edging his tone. I presume you would find the like explanation for the messages she professed to be sending to her husband when engaged in babbling full words into the dead girl's ears. Certainly. He was there, mark you. He stood where he could both see and hear her. All she said and all she did was by way of appeal to him for some token of regret, some sign that he appreciated her recitance, and when she found that it was bringing her nothing, she fainted away. Ingenuous, very ingenuous, Grice. Had you failed to give us proofs connecting this idol of the Republican Party with the actual shooting, it would have been simply ingenuous and a quite useless expenditure of talent. But we have these proofs, and while they are mainly circumstantial, they undoubtedly call upon us for some recognition, and so we will hear you out, whatever action we may take afterwards. But first I should like to ask Mr. Grice one question, interposed his assistant, then addressing the detective. Two mysteries are involved in this matter. You have given us a clever explanation of one of them, but how about the other? Will you, before going further, tell us what connection you find between the theory just advanced and the flight and ultimate suicide of Madame Duclos under the circumstances which point to a desire to suppress evidence even at the cost of her life? It was not from consideration for Mr. Roberts, whom you have shown she hated. What was it, then? Have you an equally ingenuous explanation for that, too? I have an explanation, but I cannot say that it is altogether satisfactory. She died but yesterday, and my opportunities have been very small for any work since. What I have learned was from her sister-in-law, whom I saw this morning. Realizing that she will be obliged to give full testimony at the inevitable inquest, she is at last ready to acknowledge that she has been aware for a long time of a secret in the madam's life, that while she knew nothing of its nature, she had always thought that it was in some manner connected with her prolonged residence abroad. Whether it would also explain the meaning of her return at this time and the seemingly inexplicable change made in her daughter's name while en route must be left to our judgment. Madame had told her nothing. She had simply made use of their home, coming and going, not once but twice, without giving them the least excuse for her inexplicable conduct. A hundred questions could not elicit more. But the one who, like myself, has had the opportunity of observing this wretched woman at the moment of her supreme distress, an insight is given into her character which suggests the only plausible explanation of her action. 
Her sacrifice was one of devotion. She perished in an exaltation of feeling. Love drove her to this desperate act, not the love of woman for a man, but the love which women of her profound nature sometimes feel for one of their own sex. Mrs. Taylor was her friend. Wait, I hope to prove it, and to save her from experiencing the extreme misery of seeing the man who was the joy, as well as the bane of her life, suffer from the consequences of his own misdeeds. Antoinette Duclos felt willing to die and did. You smile, gentlemen. You think this old man is approaching senility. Perhaps I am. But if the contention is raised that no connection has been shown to exist between Mrs. Taylor and this foreign madame, save such as was made by the death of madame's child, I must retort by asking who warned Madame Duclos of the fatal occurrence at the museum in time for her to flee before even our telephone messages reached her hotel. Gentlemen, there is but one person who could have done this, our chief witness, Emmetrude Taylor. She alone had not only the incentive, but the necessary opportunity. Coroner Price, as well as myself, made a great mistake when we allowed Mrs. Taylor to go home alone that day. Very likely, this from the chief inspector. But if the information I have received on this point is correct, she seemed at that time to be so entirely disassociated with a deed whose origin had just been located in the opposite gallery that you have no real cause to blame yourselves in this regard. True, our minds were diverted, but you are waiting for me to explain what I mean by opportunity. Since my attention has been drawn to Mrs. Taylor again, I have been making inquiries. The chauffeur who drove her to her hotel has been found, and he admits that she stopped once on her way home to buy some coffee. He watched her as she went into the store, and he watched her as she came out, and he smelled the coffee. Happily, the interest he took in her as a sick woman entrusted to his care was strong enough for him to remember the store. It was one with two entrances, front and back, and next door to it there is a public building with a long row of telephone booths on the ground floor. If I read the incident aright, she bought her coffee, ordered it ground, slipped out at the rear door and into the adjoining building where, unnoticed and unheard, she called up the Universal and got into communication with Madame Duclos. When she returned, it was by the same route. She did not forget her coffee, nor give way under the great strain, to which she had subjected herself till she reached her own apartment. Clever. And true, gentlemen, I will stake my reputation on it, unable as I am to explain every circumstance and close up every gap. Have you any further questions to ask, or shall I leave you to your deliberations? End of chapter 28, part 2